0: Hello, and welcome from the Renaissance Baptist Church of Brooklyn in Ontario, Canada. Join us this week as Pastor John Blackman shares from the book of 1 Corinthians. So for a couple of months now, we've been on this um, journey of working through this uh, big letter written by the Apostle Paul to uh, the church in Corinth uh, we call 1 Corinthians. And we we picked this up particularly um, thinking that after... The, the years of uh, kind of uh, lockdowns and uh, closures and the difficulty of being together, fellowshipping in person, um, that, that this was probably a great letter for just kind of a refresher on, you know, well, what's a church even supposed to be? Um, we, we've, over the years, uh, regularly said here at Renaissance that, that the Christian journey is a group hike. Like, it never was meant to be this individual one, me, just me and Jesus alone. And so 1 Corinthians was, we picked it as a great refresher um, in order to kind of renew ourselves in some of those things. And we're in chapter 8 now. We're going to try and cover the whole uh, chapter here this morning. And, uh, you know, on the surface, like, after you think about where we've been in the last three weeks, um, they kind of score super high on the awkward scale. Uh, I've heard that report from some of our younger members getting home saying to mom and dad that was a little old for me today uh, mom and dad you know i think probably uh, if you're hoping you don't hear the phrase sexual immorality in a sermon again for a while well you'd be thinking upon a reading of chapter 8 that uh, we're going to get to in a moment that uh, maybe we're going to finally get a little bit of a hall pass from the awkward kind of scale In uh, this this section that we're looking at. You know, because the whole chapter is this um, debate or a response to um, a first century um, problem, whether or not Christians should go to banquets at pagan temples and consume meat sacrificed to idols. And we might be tempted to say, finally, finally we get to kind of criticize and rail against something that we don't do anyway. We always love to criticize people for things that we, problems we don't have. But if I do a little bit of background, and I, I'm going to need to do a little extended background because right now in this letter, all of chapter eight, nine, 10, and I've just learned this week, even 11 all kind of require some understanding of the background of these temples and these sacrifices and meat sacrifice to idols and everything that's going on in our chapter. So I won't have this long of an intro in the next few sermons, but it's important for all of the chapters we're going to look at if you've been reading along in 1 Corinthians. Um, You know, with a little bit of background, you're going to find there's way more going on here than meets the eye. And I hope by the time you leave today that you've kind of grown in another way that we display Jesus as the center of all life, which we are always reminding you of here at Renaissance. Um, I think that this passage we're going to look at today and the discussion we're going to have on the next few weeks really gives us some vision of what it looks like to live Christianly in a world that's not following Christ. How do we do that? Because, you know, in order to to display Jesus as the center of all life, we probably need to be living in a Jesus-focused, Jesus-directed way, correct? So uh, some background things. First of all, what is idle meat? My, the translation I'm going to use today doesn't use the term idle meat. Some do, but there's going to be this debate whether or not Christians should eat idle meat. Well, you got to remember this is the first century in Corinth, a Greek city. Um, per capita statistics, it seems like they had as many Uh, temples to various gods as we have Tim Hortons in our day and age. They were just everywhere. It was just such a big... And if you think of the parts of high school uh, literature that you, uh, you know, kind of struggled through, um, all of the kind of pantheon of all the Greek gods and what a big deal this was, there were temples and, and sacrifices and stuff going on all over the place. It was just such a big part of their culture where they had come from. There were different gods for different blessings. There were animal sacrifices being done because you wanted to curry favor from these from these gods that could seemingly flip on a switch and turn nasty on you. You also um, brought meat and sacrifice to these gods just to show your good citizenship. You know, sometimes somebody does something and, and we say, that's just downright un-Canadian to, to say that or do that. Well... To not be participating in all of this whole uh, industrial idol complex, it would be like, it's just like an insult to their whole culture and their whole way of life. So you did it to show good citizenship, you add into that, now Rome's taken over and and there's also a whole religious element to worshipping the emperor. And there'd be a temple to the emperor everywhere, and you'd be required to show your worship of the emperor and that you considered him a god. These temples were beautiful often. They were built by the uber-rich donors, and that helped to show the the people around how important they were and how wealthy they they were by uh, these temples that they donated all this money for. And they often included banquet rooms, a facility, where once you've taken your uh, meat to be sacrificed, you could uh, use the facilities after. And it's Corinth, so you figure all the furniture has rich Corinthian leather, like Roberto Multibom used to say in the commercials. Anyway, according to Barclay, and this is William, not Charles, you, you basically took your animal to the temple, and they sacrificed it to you, and generally a third of that animal went up in smoke, a third of it were user fees, Went to the priest, went to the temple, went for sale in order to keep the whole thing running, and a third of it you got to keep. And so you could take that home, and you could throw a big lavish party with this third of an animal, and you can invite all your friends, and they would see, oh, this guy's got it; he's obviously so blessed by the gods because he's given his big sacrifice, and he's giving all, he can give all this meat away for free. Obviously, God's blessing him. It was like the first century version of Instagram. That was Hashtag blessed, because you had this big banquet and you could show that you had the favor of the gods. That's always been a temptation, by the way, for people to read divine favor as being materially blessed and wealthy and and all of that kind of stuff. So it's it's got a very old history. Um, but important for our passage, uh, if you really wanted to show off or make connections that could further your social standing and business opportunities. You'd throw a party right at that room I mentioned at the temple. And it, we've been saying through this series that there's this whole important cultural idea that you, you are who you eat with, right? That who you're seen eating with was just huge for that, that kind of said who you were Um, you, you were a somebody by the people you associated with. Well, here at the temple, we still have a little bit in that culture, of that in our culture, you know, being seen. It's like being in a luxury box at the Maple Leaf game or whatever. You know, this shows you're a real somebody, that you're at the temple having this big banquet. And so people would use this to further their careers, their business, their social status, which was so important for these very proud people, and you wanted to be seen. And you needed to participate in all of this in order to get somewhere in life. Then there were also big citywide festivals. Because uh, from my research this week, not a lot of people that didn't have money ate any meat. Or it was very rare. So there would be big festivals. And we might have the Santa Claus parade and they're throwing out candy canes. Apparently, it was way more keto-friendly. And I would have been ready right there at the front because they're having the big parade to the gods and they're throwing out meat to everybody from this meat that had been sacrificed. Go catch a steak and take it home and it's like, whoa, look at, you know, look at this. So there, there's all of this cultural stuff behind this whole sacrifice thing. Um, so ethically, we haven't even read the passage yet. ethically, if you uh, um, are a person that is of a Jewish background, then, uh, you know, once we get the catechism rolling again, we're going to be going through the Ten Commandments and, uh, and idolatry and worshiping other gods, huge no-no. So the idea of, like, meat that's been involved in this kind of a pagan thing, that has an ethical concern for you that would really bother you. You're, you're to have no idols. You're supposed to flee from idolatry. And then, and then even kosher handling of meat. There's, even if it's the right kind of meat, there's no way that this meat was processed and handled in any kind of way that would be close to being proper kosher handling of meat. Then you have a person maybe without a uh, Jewish background that maybe was a devoted kind of follower of these false religions and false gods and really twisted things going on. Like th- this party room I'm telling you about. It wasn't just a banquet facility like at the Polish Hall down there uh, over on North Oshawa. Like, strange stuff would have gone on in these festivals. Uh, Often the women would leave, the wives would leave. It gives gives an idea where the party's going, right? And so you've kind of grown up in this cult, and now it's like, I don't want anything to do with that. It would really bother you. There's another ethical problem. And then another thing that's difficult in this passage is is when we're going to read it in a moment, what part of our passage is Paul quoting, quoting something that came in this letter? Remember last week we said this whole section is kind of like an old uh, Bob Newhart skit where you're only hearing half the conversation? So it's hard to figure out which part is a quote from this letter Paul got that we don't have and which part is his actual teaching. And and that's tricky. I I don't know that I'm going to get it all right this morning because it's difficult. But that's another important thing. Um, And who are the people that he's talking to? He's going to use these phrases like the weak. You would think that the other one is strong because somewhere elsewhere in the Bible, Paul talks about the weak and the strong in the book of Romans. Here it's the weak and the enlightened or the knowledgeable. Um, Who are those people? That's, That's important. It, it sounds in verse 1 that we're going to see it, it, in chapter 8, it's, it almost sounds like, uh, you know, Paul saying, well, we all have knowledge about the ethics of idol meat. Um, we don't know if he's quoting a letter from them or not. I think he is, because later on in verse 7, he quickly says, however, this knowledge is not possessed by all. So you see those two things aren't equal? We all have this knowledge, and then seven verses later, but this knowledge is not possessed by all. So which one is it, Paul? These are difficult. Here's the knowledge that I think Paul is actually criticizing in this passage. Um, The same criticism he's been giving in the first seven chapters we've looked at this fall. People in this congregation have um, taken a doctrinal truth. We're going to read this doctrinal truth, and that part's totally true, that there is only one God. Basically, idols are all bogus. They're all false gods. But they they take that idea, and uh, so the typical... Temple reveler grew up believing that these idols had these magical powers. And these people with the knowledge, they're saying, no, we know better than that. These idols are nothing. There's only one God. So they kind of feel like they have this buffered existence. You know, I have this knowledge that there's only one God, so whatever's going on at the uh, idol depot down there, um, it has no effect on me because I have this superior knowledge, so I'm safe. And then that's all that matters. It's not going to hurt me. Yeah. I'm not afraid of no ghosts. <laughs> that's kind of what their attitude here, right? Um, it's almost a deeper definition of our word daredevil. Meanwhile, another background thing. Before this letter is written, there's already been a big convention in the book of Acts, a symposium, you could say, in Acts 15. Because all of these Gentiles are becoming believers in Christ. And there starts to be the first church conflict is, don't all of these converts have to become fully Jewish in order to be legit? And they have a big, long debate, and all the apostles are there, giving their opinions, and they finally come to the conclusion, no. This is a new covenant. They don't have to uh, become Jewish in order to be legit. They don't have to take on all of those ceremonial laws. And it's kind of wrapped up in uh, in Acts 15 like this. Uh, Their conclusions were verse 19 of Acts 15. And so my judgment is, this is James speaking, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write and tell them what? Tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols. So there's already a teaching been handed down by the apostles before we get to what we're going to read in in Acts chapter 8. They should abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality. Oh, there it is again. From the eating of meat of strangled animals and from consuming blood. So what we have, we're going to read about a group who think they know better, encouraging others to ignore the problem of idolatry. And Paul's going to expose their problematic thinking. Um... The weak are the ones who, it seems rightly, are seeking to follow the apostles' teaching obediently. And uh, the knowledge-it-alls, I'm going to call them the knowledge-it-alls today instead of the know-it-alls, they're pressuring them to go against their commitment. And uh, the word conscience is going to be used here. That's that's not quite the full-blown idea of conscience that we have in our English language, but um, it's... We're going we're gonna to read it. Let me get to the passage. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now, regarding your question about food that's been offered to idols, yes, we know that we all have knowledge about this issue. But while knowledge makes us feel important, it's love that strengthens the church. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. But the person who loves God is the one whom God recognizes. And some, some translations and manuscripts read, the person who loves has full knowledge. Verse 4, so what about eating meat that's been offered to idols? Well, we all know that an idol is not really a god and that there is only one god. There may be so-called gods, both in heaven and on earth, and some people actually worship many gods and many lords, but for us, there is one God, the Father, by whom all things were created, and for whom we live. And there's one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created, and through whom we live." However, not all believers know this. Some are accustomed to thinking of idols as being real. So when they eat food that's been offered to idols, they think of it as the worship of real gods, and their weak consciences are violated. It's true that we can't win God's approval by what we eat. We don't lose anything if we don't eat it, and we don't gain anything if we do. Now, time out. Even though I'm going to come back, I don't have the slides for this. I'm going to take a time out right here. Because it sounds as if Paul's so far said, you know, yeah, it's really not a big deal. But in chapter 10, which we're going to get to in a few weeks, here's what he says on the same issue in chapter 10. He says, what am I trying to say? Am I saying that food offered to idols has some significance or that idols are real gods? No, not at all. I'm saying that these sacrifices are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to participate with demons. You cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and from the cup of demons, too. You cannot eat at the Lord's table and at the table of demons, too. What? Do we dare rouse the Lord's jealousy? Do you think we are stronger than He is? You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. So you may eat any meat that's sold in the marketplace without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So getting back to chapter 8. But you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. For if others see you with your superior knowledge eating in the temple of an idol, won't they be encouraged to violate their conscience by eating food that has been offered to an idol? So because of your superior knowledge, a weak believer for whom Christ died will be destroyed. And when you sin against other believers by encouraging them to do something they believe in is wrong, you are sinning against Christ. So if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I'll never eat meat again as long as I live, for I don't want to cause another believer to stumble." Another important background idea in this passage is just this whole idea of knowledge. And it's, Paul's describing this kind of knowledge that induces some kind of puffiness. It puffs a person up. It's a knowledge that rationalizes that they're too cool for apostolic school. Uh, This mentality of false wisdom and knowledge, Paul warns, it tears down a community. A community's effort to display Jesus as the center of all life. It, it brings leaven into the lump, if you remember our teaching on leaven and lumps earlier, and, and it says it's, it's okay. It's no big deal. Uh, we can handle it. Or it claims that, that because of this knowledge, you have some kind of leaven resistance or leaven immunity. And then he's talking about this love that builds up. So there's this bad knowledge that just puffs you up, but there's a certain kind of love that builds up the church. It's to care more about the effect on the community of faith in the way you exercise your freedom. It cares more about that than you care about exercising your freedom. There are three main takeaways I want you to leave with this morning. Like I say, chapter 9 and 10, they're going to kind of continue to pick up anything that we might leave untouched here. So if you think I missed something, don't worry about it. We got three more chapters in the same kind of argument and ideas. And if Paul spent so much ink on it, we could spend a few weeks on it as well. And spoiler alert, this is new to me this week as I read about this, these pagan sacrifices and these meals in pagan temples. Never connected this previously. I don't know why. I've preached through Corinthians before. We're going to have that chapter in chapter 11 about the Lord's Supper. Incidentally, also a meal given after a sacrifice. That's meant to display something and identify the people that take part in it. So so all of this is a big so what is going to be, well, well, what is real Christian fellowship about? And why is that so important? Um, Anyway, these three takeaways. These three takeaways. um, First one is this overriding principle of love. If you look at verses 1 to 3 in your Bibles... Love is what builds up the church. The word knowledge is used six times in these three verses. But the engine that really builds up the church to be what she's meant to be, and I think that's God's, the church is meant to be God's agent for bringing all things together under Christ's lordship for God's glory. You can think of the church as we're the glory agency. We're the glory agency. Everything that we should do should be bringing glory to God. That's, a, that's our calling. And uh, there's this important matter of the impact on my brother or sister of what I might do in any situation, especially gray areas where we disagree with right and wrong. I've got a question for you. Do you have a who cares attitude toward what other people might conclude, um, sometimes wrongly, Regarding your behavior. You know, I don't care. I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I don't care what anybody thinks. It's a popular attitude in the culture we live in. Uh, But in Philippians uh, 2, Paul says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind consider one another more important than yourself." to not look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. These are not really easy to swallow passages of Scripture in the culture that we've lived in, where we get cheered on for doing things our way. Got to be me. Got to be, got to be, I got to be myself. You don't get to tell me what to do. Paul's not condemning, by the way, um, knowledge outright here in this contrast between love and knowledge, I'm going to come back to why that's a problem. Um, One of the worst and most misleading cliches ever invented in the Christianese language is that we need to balance truth with love. Have you ever heard this before? got to balance truth with love. Um, Truth and love are not some kind of evangelical yin and yang. Like, they're not two things that are in opposite, and we need to walk some fine line between these two opposite things of truth and love. If it's not loving, it's not Christian truth. And if it's not true, it's not Christian loving. So before you start a sentence with, well, I'm just speaking the truth and love here, be sure you are. Some remarkably love-starved statements follow that phrase. And Paul wants First Corinthian Baptist and Renaissance Baptists to be strong and firm enough to be able to bear heavy weights that require a solid base of Christ-like love, which is not something that's puffed up. Here's what one commentator, David Pryor, wrote. I think I have this quote for you, Cindy, on a slide. When a Christian's character is controlled by love and is growing in true knowledge, he's no longer concerned so much with how well he knows God as with being known by God. And that actually is the proof of true love for God. Any true knowledge does not lead to pride in what we know, but to humility about what we do not know. Did you catch that when I read it? Paul said, "Well, knowledge makes us feel important, it's love that strengthens the church. Anyone who claims to know all really doesn't know very much. But the person who loves God is the one whom God recognizes. There's also a a pitfall uh, when it comes to uh, an attitude people have when they start thinking about biblical ethics and all these debates about, well, what do I have freedom to do and what does somebody not get to tell me to do and what's right and what's wrong? And a really dangerous mentality is that people can always be on a quest to figure out, well, how far can I push it? How close can I get to the edge or the line? And then also, well, what's in it for me? If I've got to give this up, it's it's got to be worth it. Um, Christian love, agape love, primarily wants to give. It wants to help. It wants to avoid harm. To love God, which is a byproduct of what his son did for us in his death, to love God begins the adventure of being known by God. And and all true knowledge is really entering into God's knowledge of us and God's knowledge of others. I'm going to unpack that in a minute. But our knowledge is always partial and never total. Uh, The the more we think we know it all, the more puffed up we are and uh, probably the bigger our blind spots. So getting back to the barbecue here. There's some kind of knowledge that idols are fake anyway, you know. I could just think of slogans if it was me rationalizing things in the first century. I'd probably come up with one-liners like, you know, it's steak. It's not a marriage. You know, I'm having a burger here, not a worship service. And uh, whatever you might think in rationalizing in a situation like this, whatever you think is really going to achieve nothing to build up others in the faith. On the other hand, if I take time to think out about how does my behavior affect my brothers and sisters in Christ, now I'm starting to build and develop and walk out into Christian wisdom. Christian wisdom. How will I navigate this thorny issue in a way that brings others closer to God? I I could ask myself, are Christians strengthened in their faith by my example in this issue or that issue? Again, the same commentary, I'm going to quote, his name's Pryor. When a Christian's knowledge is radiated and released by love, he's clearly demonstrating that he knows God and God knows him. It shows that there's a deepening relationship between the two of us. Matthew 23, I think, is a really important passage for this whole thing. Even though it's a little bit of the other side of the coin, the people he's talking to here, they're just really hanging on knowledge and... Uh, at the expense of love, um, just what I talked about. Matthew 23, Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. Here's his knowledge. He says, so practice and obey what they tell you, but don't follow their example, for they don't practice what they teach. He says, they crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Later in verse 14, In verse 15, I should say, of Matthew 23, he says directly to the Pharisees and the teachers, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees? Hypocrites. Listen to this. For you cross land and sea to make one convert, and then you turn that person into twice the child of hell you yourselves are. The whole chapter in Matthew 23 is a, is a really somber warning about the problem with truth and love somehow being opposite categories, as if they're not related. So second uh, important idea, if the, if the first one is the, the importance of love for building up the church, the second one is a fundamental truth in verses 4 to 6. There is only one God. That's not up for debate here. There is only one God. Uh, notice if you'll read it, it says by whom and through whom. Everything's made by God the Father. Everything's made through Jesus the Son. What's that all about? Well, it's a specific, there's only one God that we're talking about. And he has a son named Jesus. If Jesus made everything, then he is also pre-existent. He does everything. He does it all in perfect alignment with his heavenly Father. Janine was just reading a little Christmas uh Reading to the grandkids on uh, Friday night. Well, some of your teenagers were here with their parents, and uh, she mentioned, you know, Jesus was existed before Christmas, and you know, then their little minds are like, oh, what? They had all kinds of how's that possible? That uh, he wasn't. You know, and so, it's a big idea. That's the God that we worship. Um, earlier in our series, I mentioned that when we talk about a kingdom, the kingdom of God. It has a king. If you're living in a kingdom, there's a king and it's not, it's not us. So idolatry really is a big deal. And if we're going to seek to display Jesus as the center of all life, then we're not the center of all life. We're not even the center of our own lives. Uh, if we are to walk around displaying Jesus as the center of all life, won't worship be a huge part of us even being able to do that? But as soon as I said worship, you might have thought about the time we spent before I got up here and started dominating the discussion. You worship all week long. You're a worship machine. It's part of how you're hardwired as a human being and God's purpose for all men, women. And we all worship in all kinds of things. What what we ascribe worth to, what our values are, how we go about our life, what really matters the most to us. We're we're worshiping all the time. It shows who your king is. So being under the one God and one Lord, this this fundamental truth, that's never going to synchronize very well with a world full of idols. By by definition, you're going to be out of step with the world that you live in. It's interesting how the uh, knowledge at alls in our passage. They seem to think that this one fund- fundamental truth—that there is only one God—that it seemed to provide them with this kind of buffered self. This, this, um, some kind of spiritual supersuit. You know, it, we can almost think of the ideas. Well, it's really what's inside that counts. You know, um, or it's really what we believe doctrinally that matters more than our actions. And Paul's saying, this is the kind of knowledge that that puffs up. When you start believing that your actions and how they have an effect on other people around you are, are irrelevant uh, from my studies this week, there seems to have been quite a social and financial and cultural price to pay if you were going to co-opt out of these temple festivals. It was a giant industrial religious machine um, their whole economy ran around it the the Food at your grocery store was all connected with it. It was almost impossible to avoid it completely, and uh, there was a lot of stigma behind somebody doing that. It was going to cost them financially. They were going to miss out on that kind of whining and dining that was all part of their economy. They were going to be misunderstood by extended family and friends, and they were going to be considered antisocial, anti-Corinthian. Now, I'd just say as a tip, as you think about the idea of living Christianly in a world that's going in the exactly opposite direction of the worship of Jesus Christ as Lord, that there is a way for you to opt out of things. Things that Scripture say are just, we are to be different and they're not for us. There is a way to opt out of things that uh, doesn't require you to have a holier than thou or condescending attitude to your neighbor. But eventually when pressed, when you're living like that, and you're sticking out a little bit like a sore thumb, it can lead to some pretty powerful conversations where somebody says, well, how come you don't do this? And I would encourage you to take a deep breath and pray and say, have you got a minute? (laughs) You know, I can tell you about it. There are some reasons for that. You know, you're the one that asked. You don't knock on the door and say, hey, I don't do this. <laughs> but when somebody asks you about it, and you say, well, have you got a minute? I'll, I'll tell you. It's, it's really a part of a whole worldview that I have and a, and a way that I live my life. Um, so the fact that there's only one God, that doesn't make you immune to the world, the flesh, and the devil. But it does make you make a choice. If there's truly only one God, then, then you serve him. He doesn't serve you. So if the overriding principle is that love builds up and the fundamental truth is that there's only one God, then the supreme consideration in this passage is this line, the brother for whom Christ died. That's what I want to talk to you at the end here. The brother for whom Christ died. Paul does say in verse 7 that the sensitive, formal idol worshipers believe that idols are real. So shouldn't the knowledge at all, my my phrase, the knowledge at alls, shouldn't they really just help these weaker Christians get over their superstition? Um, The interesting thing is, like I say from verse 10, part that we read already this morning, we'll see Paul does agree that these are false religions and that idols are only a chunk of wood or stone, but there's dark spiritual forces behind any kind of false religion, that leads people away from worship of the one true God. So even if, the, even if the thing itself, even if the temple and the stuff on the walls is all just fake, anything that leads a person away from the worship of Christ is being controlled by dark spiritual forces. When we get to chapter 10, we'll unpack that a little bit. Because I think we've kind of become too cool for the apostolic school in and, and some of those things in our lives. And we kind of feel like we're buffered from any kind of demonic or spiritual darkness that's behind things that happen around us. Um, in verse 8, Paul does introduce a truth that he agrees that the dietary laws of kosher and non-kosher, they, they don't really contribute to a person's standing before God. In chapter 10, we're going to find out he's going to say, yeah, you know what? You can go down to uh, Corinthian Freshco and you, that meat probably went in the front end of a idol temple and came out the other side ready for consumer goods, you could buy that, take it home to your own house, and you're not going to be causing anyone to stumble. I think the issue really here is being seen and associated with the worship of these false gods. Being a participant in temple meals is the big thing. And it's a reminder that there are naive, overly sensitive, maybe sometimes they come across as legalistic Christians who still feel they're doing something immoral, eating this or that. Now here's where it gets radical. This is the brother for whom Christ died. Paul tells us to limit your freedom for their sakes. If I'm honest with you, I struggle more with this than I do with altering my behavior for people who are outside of Christ. (laughs) Don't you? You know, like when I ski with two buddies from high school, I'm pretty careful about the kind of things I'll say, the way I'll talk about my life, or you know, all of those kind of things, because you feel like you know you're you're, you're careful. Yeah, you're, you're you're trying to give a good testimony, so you kind of alter things a little bit. Um, sometimes we can get really frustrated, and when we have to do this for the sake of fellow Christians, what do I mean by that? Well. I'll come back with some other examples, but some important things to consider uh, in verse 9 to the end is that you actually can harm another person doing something against which there is no law. Like you didn't even do anything that was actually wrong, but in in doing it, you can hurt somebody. And, And really in the community of faith, we're trying to encourage our brothers and sisters and weaker Christians and newer believers and people that were trying to, children that were trying to grow in the faith, we're trying to encourage them toward a maximum, not a minimum obedience to God's word and the Spirit speaking within them. Um, so so we have to be careful about helping a weaker brother get over his unnecessary scrupulosity. I know that's a big word, but it's it's hard to think of a better one. While we do spend a lot of our time in our discipleship journey, understanding who we are in Christ, that's an important part of growing up as a Christian. It's an important part of a breakthrough. I think it's an important part of understanding God, right, as we start to finally realize who we are in Christ. And we talk about this a lot. We teach about it a lot. You'll hear me talk about passages like, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have teachings like um, imputed righteousness, and we'll tell one another, Christ's righteousness is applied to you. God sees you and sees the righteousness of Christ. Awesome. Awesome. In 1 John, there's passages like, you know, it was a praise chorus when I was a kid, so I, I remember it. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we might be called the sons of God. And We love all of that. Guess what? It's true of that other believer that bothers you. There. That weaker, that one that's had too many rules, that one that rubs you the wrong way, they're the brother that Christ died for. So another important part of your discipleship journey is not just understanding who you are in Christ. It's you understanding who Adam is in Christ, who Bob is in Christ, who Leslie is in Christ. And that's how we see them. And that's how we think. That raises their value quite a bit. Because sometimes when people we're in conflict with them, we can kind of push them down and think, well, they don't matter anymore because they're disagreeing with me on this, so I don't need to listen to them anymore. That's one for whom Christ died. A weak brother, believer, described as the one for whom Christ died. Look at the risk. Paul says that they might be destroyed. They might be destroyed. He only ever uses that same word elsewhere as, like, eternal destruction. But in this line, in this verse, he's basically said, the believer for whom Christ died could be destroyed. So in the same sentence, they're a believer in Christ. I don't think Paul says they're going to lose their salvation over your thing. But earlier on in the passage and later, he talks about them stumbling. He uses a word that their faith would be scandalized by your behavior. If you love your brother and sister, you, you don't want them to stumble be scandalized by the way you live out your freedom. It, it's all so much the other-centered living that's so hard for us. Um, in verses, in verse 13 where it says that they're the one for whom Christ died, that credits them with infinite value. So when you find yourself grumbling about having to compromise your diet, your entertainment, your lifestyle because of somebody that just doesn't get it, As soon as you've concluded they're just not worth the hassle, you should immediately remember they're the one for whom Christ died. Here's the thing about the local church. It's so local. It's so local. It's meant to be tangible, substantial, meaning of substance. It's meant to be lived in in person. I have a friend who attends a large church, and he told me because he wants to be able to go in the front door and out the back without everyone knowing his business. He doesn't want anybody seeming to notice whether he's there or not. I've had friends in ministry that have kind of gravitated toward parachurch ministries, not really serving in a local church, and they don't hear me out on this, Because there's a little bit of like this maverick attitude where they just don't want the hassle of having to deal with people in church. So they just want to be able to do ministry, but without having to bring other people along with them. There's this idea that the one for whom Christ died. Uh, There's a famous uh, celebrity pastor type who was famous 10 years ago for saying congregational church government is satanic. And you know what his opinion, you know what his reasoning was? He's like, well, if a church is really going to be successful, then you don't want a bunch of dumb sheep holding things back by their weakness. Leadership and decisions and money and the like are best left to the ones who know. It's just way more efficient. It was kind of like a Lee Iacocca school of ministry. Lead, follow, or get out of the way. And that's so devaluing for the one for whom Christ died. Again, Matthew 20, I was in it last week. You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. Verse 26, but among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. I just, it's been killing me that line, verse 26 from Matthew, in the last few weeks. But among you, it will be different. All of these things, all of these practices, all of these challenges, they create a difference. It's something that sticks out in the world. There are positive things, too, where people should be saying, well, why do you do this this way? You'd be able to say, have you got a minute? We're going to try to flesh out more specific examples of trading our rights for the sake of others in in chapters 9 and 10, this foundation we've been laying today. Do you know that in the next couple of chapters, some of the most famous meme-posted passages of all are going to come along that we would normally just kind of lift out of context. I'm thinking of one like, all athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away. But we do it for an eternal prize. Or I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I might s- myself be disqualified. We love lines like that in a sports-obsessed world. And then we realize he's talking about the disciplines of putting others first. Not demanding our own rights then we don't love those verses so much. Paul's going to say, if you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. You know the verse, the famous verse, the temptation in in, uh, your life is no different from what others experience and God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand and when you're tempted, he'll show you a way out so that you can endure and he's still talking about false idols, self-centeredness and we're tempted to go in the other direction. Um, or when we say, you know, I shouldn't have to forgo a legitimate right just because so-and-so might take it wrong. And Paul's going to say, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Don't give offense to Jews or Gentiles or the church of God. I, too, try to please everyone in everything I do. I don't just do what's best for me. I do what's best for others so that many may be saved. In the end, Paul's still talking about loaf and leaven because all of these ideas from chapter 8, 9, and 10 are going to end up in that long discussion toward this beautiful thing called the Lord's table and eating at the Lord's table. And unless we do it in the right way, it's no longer even the Lord's table. It's more like those pagan festivals that he's warning them about in chapter 8, 9, and 10 and and our fellowship and our connection as a congregation is meant to preach so much about the reality of this god that we serve how much do you care about the effect of your lifestyle on the community of faith maybe take a 3 week fast from allowing yourself to use the phrase i don't care what anybody else thinks or phrases like well I'm not going to live my life by their expectations or they don't get to tell me what to do. try to purge those out for a few weeks. Think of how often as you live a life of discipleship, you'll bump into walls of your own freedom in order to follow Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is a difficult uh, passage of Scripture. We know we've got a couple more chapters ahead of us. It's hard for us to follow the example of Christ. We are going to be celebrating a lot in the next few weeks about Jesus coming to a manger. And it's so easy to think about the demotion, (laughs) where he came from to come to that place, to take on human flesh, to live a life of sacrifice and obedience to you and pay the ultimate price for us. Lord, I pray that uh, we will factor those kinds of things into our idea of what it means to live a Christian, a Christ-like existence. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. For more information, please visit brooklynrbc.ca. The link is also in our bio. On behalf of the Renaissance Baptist Church of Brooklyn, we pray you have a blessed week.